When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sine Janolo. I studied neuroscience and bioengineering, graduating with a PhD with, from ATH Zurich in Switzerland. Currently, I'm working in the diagnostics industry. Today, I have with me Alison Calder to talk about Synaptic, her new collection of poems. In her new collection, Alison, an award-winning poet, attempts to map the brain's neural connections, raising fundamental questions about identity and interiority. This intricate yearning work uh, from Alison asks us to think about the way we perceive and the ways in which we seek to know ourselves and others. In the book, each section explores key themes in science, neurology, and perception. The first, connectomics, riffs on scientific language to work with and against that language's intentions. Attempting to map the brain's neural connections, it raises fundamental questions about interiority and the self. The lyric considerations in these poems are juxtaposed against the scientific-like footnotes, which, in turn, invoke questions undermining authority and power. The second section, Other Disasters, explores ways of seeing or being seen, from considerations of folklore to modern art to daily life. Alison Kader earned a PhD in English Literature from the University of Western Ontario, following a BA from the University of Saskatchewan and... (laughs) MA from the University of Western Ontario. Calder's debut collection of poetry, Wolf Tree, was a finalist for the Pat Lothar Memorial Award for the Best Book of Poetry by a Canadian Woman in 2008, a finalist for the Gerald Lampert Memorial Award for the Best First Book of Poetry by a Canadian, and winner of the Aquabooks Lanzone Poetry Prize at the Manitoba Writing and Publishing Awards. Calder was awarded the Bronwyn Wallace Award in 2004. Uh, Calder is currently a professor in the English department of the University of Manitoba. She lives in Winnipeg with her husband, Warren Carew. Thank you, Alison, for joining us today. Well, thank you very much. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. Besides the name of the university where you got your DA, hope I got everything else correctly. (laughs) That sounded perfect to me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. So, um, I mean, this is your your resume, basically, but you were a poet after all, and you're also a critic and a professor. So maybe you want to tell us a little bit about um, your process, how you come to write poetry. What does it mean for you? Oh, that's a good question. It's a big question. Um, I think I came to write poetry. Um, my parents were both very interested in in literature when we were children. My, my father actually is an English professor as well, or was until his retirement. Um, so books and poetry were seen as something that were not um, strange or absurd. Um, and, you know, um, I really liked it. I think I really liked the sound of words a lot. And um 
I like things that are kind of strange, I guess. And language is very, very strange, right? And if, especially if you speak more than one language, you will know like intimately like the weirdnesses of each each way of speaking, right? And so I'm fascinated, I guess, by the way that language lives in particular places. And I don't mean just different languages like, you know, English and German, for example, but the language of sports, right? Or the language of knitting, you know, or the language of science, right? And the ways in which those particular um, ecosystems, I guess, operate. And, you know, I think um, we all know how difficult it is to express ourselves in words. (laughs) And I think, you know, there's always this... uh, you know, this, this desire to get to that perfect expression that we're, we're going to find. And I think um, we're never really going to get to that, that place of perfect expression or perfect knowledge. And that's actually something that I talk about in this particular collection, Synaptic, about you know, using sort of science as my, my environment there. But I think, um, I mean, poetry is something that has always been um, interesting to me. And I'm fortunate to have found a career, I guess, which allows me to, you know, spend my time reading poetry, talking about it with people, um, you know, and bouncing ideas off of other people in a way that's not seen as really strange, (laughs) I guess, because everybody in the world is equally strange to be in my little environment here. Thank you for that. And actually, in the uh, in the book, uh, you've already touched upon it a little bit, really, this interplay between scientific language and what that means, uh, because basically science just explains things that we are experiencing very naturally ourselves. So that interplay is, is really uh, coming across, and I personally really uh, enjoyed reading it. So um, I want to ask, so th- there are these two parts so about connectomics. Um, how did you come up with the idea to explore that scientific language and specifically neuroscience? Yeah, well, I, so I have, I have no little, I mean, I have no little, I have no scientific background, um, you know, other than a sort of an interested layperson's understanding of general science. Um, but I was in conversation one day with a colleague in the biology department. Um, we were killing time at a meeting, I think, and he mentioned that they have these glowing mice in the biology building. I thought, glowing mice, like, tell me more. So, of course, he's puzzled his phone and we're Googling images and this kind of thing. And I'm like, wow, like, you know, as someone not in that environment, it seems very science fiction to me, you know? And, and so then um, he said, you know, if you think that's amazing, you should check out this transparent brain. I'm like, what, you know, the transparent brain, how can such a thing be, you know, it's so not um, something I would ever think is even possible, but of course it is. And to, to many people like who work in that field, it's completely normal. Right. But for me, it was a strange and weird thing. So I was Googling around images of the transparent brain and I was really struck by one in particular. And it's an image of um, of a brain that, so it's a it's sort of like a split image, right? And one, one part of the image is a mouse brain, I think it is, sitting on a page, like of text, and you can see the little brain there. And the other half of it is that same page, which you can read completely clearly, like the brain has been turned transparent, and you can actually read the text through it. And the intention here is to show how clear you can see everything, right? How everything can be very easily surveyed. But what when you get to that text, right, that text is going to trip you up, in my opinion, right? Because what the text actually says is underneath the brain, I was checking this out this morning, just to make sure I I got it right. The text says, um, the brain is a world consisting of a number of unexplored continents and great stretches of unknown territory. Well, that's a metaphor, right? So metaphors are not <laughs> like you're not getting you're, you're never getting to the thing itself right a metaphor or a simile or any kind of poetic comparison figurative language really is about deferring meaning 
right? Where we can't actually talk about what love is like. So we say love is like a rose, which approximates that, but we never actually get there. So the idea of like having this sort of like transparent kind of like perfect knowledge of something was really challenged by the fact that when you got to the heart of what was being sought, right, it what it remains this this closed box, right? There was something else that could never actually be opened up. So I was really like um, sort of entranced, I guess, by this simultaneous transparency and opacity, right? And like sort of thinking like, huh, like this is the, like this image exists to show that we know, well, that we know, period, right? And what it exists, like what it actually does for me is it shows that we don't know, right? We haven't reached there. We haven't gotten there yet. So I was really... Um, I guess that was sort of the germ for the idea of exploring ideas about, you know, knowability and power and surveillance and identity, right? Because the whole idea behind the brain being transparent, I mean, that was, you know, I saw that as a literal thing, but for me, that's also very, again, it's very metaphorical, right? And it speaks to the idea of being able to know who you are. And this is really fascinating, right? Um, Because, you know, I like to believe, like most people, I think that, you know, I'm a creature of of my conscious will, you know, I, I am who I am, because it's something sort of innate personality to me, right. But at the same time, if I get a knock on the head, for example, you know, I might, you know, start off being a person who really loves desserts. And after that knock on the head, I suddenly I'm somebody who like, has no sweet tooth whatsoever. So like, how can that be at the same time, you know, so um, I think I write about things that I'm really interested in um, exploring, like I don't write to answer questions necessarily like I sort of write into questions and um see where where I get to and I think I mean I think this is actually um one of the challenges that scientists have as well right where the question is you know what is what you know what do you do with well I guess the question would be like what do you do with failure like or what do you do with with the failed experiment you know, in like the systems, a university system where I work in, failure is not rewarded, for example. Like if you fail, like you're not allowed to fail <laughs> pretty much, or there will be you know, consequences to various kinds, right? But of course, failure is all around us. And language is always this, this this failure, right? You never get to the thing itself. You never get to what you're saying. And so I was just really interested in all these sort of cross currents, right? And the ways I saw them swirling around um, with this image of the transparent brain sort of being like um, the catalyst, I guess, scientific language there, like the catalyst, right, for moving into uh, into this project further. And the more I went into it, like the more I was sort of entranced, right, because I was trying to learn about things, but not being a scientist, I'm not reading scientific texts, you know, I'm not reading scientific material. Um, so the only way, actually, the only way I as a lay person can understand really is through the use of figurative language, right, is through comparison and through metaphor and simile. So I was fascinated by the ways that like science was trying to explain itself to the world, right, using these, these techniques, and um, found that very productive as a source of ideas for just sort of riffing off of these different ideas and sort of like saying, okay, like, you know, this word is really interesting. Let's press on that a little bit, right? And see what else, what other meanings come out there or what other resonances this kind of language has, right? Because, um, you know, I think one of the goals of, well, one of the goals of the writers that I was reading, <laughs> trying to explain science, right, was to be very direct and very like straightforward and not go down these, like, you know, they wanted to tell me one thing, 
But I think you can never really say one thing only, you're always going to be pushed in these different directions. So that was what I was trying to do, right, was sort of look at the language and then see where where that was taking me. Yeah, and that I could, somebody who has actually done research in, in neuroscience and read quite a lot of papers, it was really nice to see like certain notions uh, where I don't even think a second time what it what else it might mean being dissected actually in the poems and like, yeah, but actually it is also like this. I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so just actually so that um, uh, our readers could also get a bit of a glimpse of your of your poems, uh, maybe we, you can read uh, clarity for us because now we have actually discussed it quite a lot. Sure. So the way the poem is set up, um, now one of the challenges I had as writing these poems was trying to convey information to the reader, right? Because unfortunately, like not everybody studies neuroscience, right? So <laughs> not everybody has the sort of context for it. So the question is, you know, how are you going to actually tell people what they need to know in order to understand the poem. And many poems you can build that context in, but not so much these ones. So each of these poems um, is accompanied by a footnote. And so this the, the whole footnoting formatting, which maybe we can talk a little, a little bit later on, um, serves two purposes, one of which is sort of theoretical, I guess, like I'm trying to do something with it, and one of which is just basically informative to tell the reader what's going on. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the title of the poem, and then I'm going to read the footnote, and then I'll go back and read the, the body of the, the poem. And so we can see how that works. So this is a very short one. It's called Clarity. And the footnote says, Clarity is the name of the process by which the brain is made transparent. Splicing firefly genes into mice makes neural mapping easier because parts of the brain will fluoresce. These mice are particularly used for Alzheimer's research. Now, now, now the poem. Clarity. Firefly mouse flickers, forgets lessons, forgets want. Inside his skull, the past incinerates, embers blizzarding into ash. The screened brains amaze, sizzling, fragments of a film that's not replayed. What and how and why flash briefly, die. Mouse mind flares, it turns to glass. Thank you. I mean, I find it really beautiful because exactly, so we work and this also these uh, fluorescent proteins, this, um, as you said, this glimmering, uh, you know, you know, mice, uh, it's so by now so ubiquitous in science that you don't even actually think the beauty of it. So, I mean, I, I was really fascinated with this poem, really kind of getting into that beauty, but also what we are seeing. So you mentioned also, at least that's how I um, interpreted uh, the past and so on. So all these, for example, memory formation, how these are basically the processes uh, that neuroscientists are studying and seeing, for example, um, fluorescent protein lighting up, a synaptic connection happening and so on. So knowing these on one side and then having this, uh, you know, beautifully translated in this, in this language and like pulled apart, this was really very, very fascinating to see from my side. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. Um, I mean, obviously, um, well, maybe it's not obvious, but I mean, the ideas of memory and so on are coming out of the fact that the, the mice are used for Alzheimer's research. And we can see, I guess, like the kind of um, range of meanings, I guess, like when I'm talking about the brain being a maze, right, we're I'm talking about like the way the brain looks, for one thing, like when it's got those little sort of ridges in it and squiggles, it looks like a labyrinth, right? Uh, we're talking about mice running through mazes, we're, we're talking about being amazed, like being straight, you know, being spellbound by something, um, all of these things coming through at the same time. And so um, 
I really like the way in which those ideas, like they, they butt up against each other, I guess, like all those definitions sort of work together and against each other at the same time, right? They all have to exist at the, in the same, in the same moment. And how did you uh, go about, uh, so did you work with some other scientists or did you just do some self-study? Because I have to say, really, uh, the explanations, this footnotes that you mentioned is really actually quite um, uh, actually concise, but at the same time comprehensive, like it's enough that we understand exactly the scientific concept. So I, I, when I was reading, I thought you must have done quite a lot of work behind that. Uh, well, the research that I did was largely just Googling, frankly, like I was, <laughs> I mean, I think, in a, like, in a sense, like, one reason I'm able to sort of be fairly concise in the footnotes is because I don't actually know very much. Like, basically, the footnote is telling you every single thing that I know about that, about that topic. So it's not like I'm trying to condense this, like, vast range of, like, subtleties, right? Um, so I guess really, all I'm telling you is, like, what I find crucial for understanding the poem and so um i mean there are there are, there may be an error or two in the footnotes that i have i have noticed over time but um so far no one else has pointed them out so I, i've been lucky that way um but yeah i just think it's really um it was really fun research and it really allowed me to follow a lot of um strange random like rabbit holes and links and just be struck by um like just the imaginative, or what seemed to me, right, a very imaginative ways of of conceptualizing the world. Um, whereas in the, the discipline of neuroscience, of course, it might be completely like take it for granted and, and pedestrian and something else, which I take for granted would be completely like, you know, entrancing and, and amazing. Um, but it was it was very fun learning a, learning a different language, kind of in a way, I think, um, or getting a very basic understanding of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And um, I want to touch upon the point you mentioned earlier about transparency and opacity. This to me is like, I, I can totally, especially neuroscience is such a difficult field to do research in because it's so hard, like all these tools that you mentioned, the clarifying the brain and uh, fluorescent proteins and so on. These are all tools so that, you know, we could study this actually much easier, but the more you develop tools, it feels like the more challenges still hit you. So I really actually, when you were talking about it, so that you think you know, you use one tool, you think you know, you figure it out, you could answer one question, comes yet another challenge that makes the whole brain or whatever processes you're studying completely opaque. So in that sense, I mean, you, what you mentioned is with language, this really also interplays with the scientific field itself. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things I was thinking about when I was writing the poems was I was thinking about um, the display of knowledge as well. And I talk about this in, in one of the poems as well, the fact that like, like the brain's all crunched up, right? Like it's this very dense, intense, little layered cake kind of, and you, you can't like the, the only way you can actually look at it is to kind of open it out, right. And spread it out so that it's it sort of fundamentally altered from what it was so you might be able to see things a little more easily because all the creases are kind of unfolded but at the same time um you know i think you might lose some of that simultaneity i guess or sort of like the way that i imagine it anyway is like the brain works as something which is crunched together <laughs> it has to be crunched together in order to work right spreading it out you know is going to make it not work so much and actually i find that to be very much like the way a poem works because poems, like especially figurative language, like metaphors and similes, 
they have like they have all kinds of um connotations i guess all of which happen at the same time or you think of how a pun works right where word that means like two different things at the same time in a poem when you're using a pun or word that have more than one meaning both of those meanings are operating at the same time and i find as someone who teaches poetry um both to creative writing students and also just to you know regular students of literature um you know when i have to dissect that poem right i have to flatten it out right and so i have to pull those different meanings out and say like you know okay like when I say it's like a rose, I mean this, and I also mean this, and I also mean this, and I make turn things into a sequence, I guess, rather than actually having them happen all at the same time, which is what happens in the poem. And so I think that's like an interesting challenge that I hadn't thought about before, sort of a similarity between like scientific inquiry and and literature. Uh, but that was something that, that struck me as I was as I was doing the thinking about this. Yeah, I totally see that. I mean, what you're describing also, it's, I, I can, like one way of seeing it, I mean, there would be so many um, analogies, but one way of seeing it would be difference between consciousness, you know, you need the brain exactly to be intact, as you said, and neuroanatomy, you dissect, and then you understand this region looks like this, it was previously connected to that, and so on. And these two are, as the both field experts will tell you, are completely different <laughs> in what you're looking at and how you're studying it so of course they're interlinked because one describes the substance and the other is like what's generated from that but um to our as you said something what a poem gives to a reader like me for example is different than when we go into a class and dissect it and then it becomes something else yeah yeah very much so and i think um like we have to have both of those things, obviously, but um, you know, you just things are lost, I guess, on both on both sides when when these processes are are enacted, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then I want to also touch upon something you've mentioned earlier about academic. So I read academic fields, um, the failure not being rewarded. This is something also you even as far as I uh, can uh, interpret cover in one of the the poems as well. So uh, I really actually I was very happy to um, happy to see that. So um, um, file drawer problem is the is the is the poem. So uh, can you talk a little bit about what file drawer problem is and um, how did you get inspired to actually talk about this in in this poem? Sure. Well, I'm going to, maybe I'll read that poem. If I can just yes, please. dig it up here. here. Um, doo, 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 where did I put that? There it is. Um, yeah. So I guess actually the file drawer problem um, is explained by the footnote. <laughs> so maybe what I'll do is I will read the footnote and then I'll talk about it a little bit and then I'll read the poem. So the footnote says, um, the term file drawer problem is shorthand for positive results bias a type of publication bias that skews researchers into reporting only research that has positive results. Authors are more likely to submit, editors more likely to accept, and granting agencies more likely to fund reports of positive outcomes than those with negative or inconclusive results. And then what you also need to know from the poem is that uh, the main sources of research funding in Canada are three separate um, research councils, okay, which apply to different um, broad, broad disciplines there. So, yeah, like I think, um, I mean, one of the challenges that uh, scientists working in at my university, at least, and I imagine others as well face is the difference between like basic science and I guess applied science, right? So, you know, can you do something, you know, 
that is just sort of to generate knowledge to this kind of curiosity based knowledge, you know, or must you always make something that can be uh, commodified, you know, or something that can have an immediate use, right? And usually I'm talking about it in terms of commodification, because that's what my institution wants to do with everything, right, is commodify it all. And so um, there's a real difficulty with, um, I think, being able to be as creative, perhaps, as as one might like to do. And I think like one of the like one of the commonalities between um, creative writers and between scientists, right, is this need to like explore things. Like both of them also have to like really work really hard, <laughs> right, in order to get things done. But also like just try to to explore things. And then what happens if you know your exploration comes up and you discover like, well, no, this this, this is a dead end, right? Or actually, this was not as productive as I thought it was going to be. Or you know, I had this ambition to create this structure and it actually just didn't work. Like that is super interesting. Like that's very very important as well, right? But what do you do like with the idea of failure or like the idea of um you know, not so much even failure, but just the, the different results or the result that tells you something other than what you were anticipating it would tell you, you know, what do you do with that? So um, I don't think we are reward, like the, the system, the system, like capital S system, the institution, right, um, wants us to produce things. Like it wants to make us marketable in different kinds of ways. And so it is, you know, wh- but where is the space for the thing that, that, is not marketable. Like, what's the price on the priceless kind of thing? So anyway, I'll, I'll just read the poem, and that will probably tell you um, probably what I just did, only probably in a more concise and interesting way. <laughs> so <laughs> the poem is File Drawer Problem. Think outside the box, but then you'd better crawl back in. Blue sky thinking only leads to clouds. A man's reach should exceed his grasp. Just kidding. No one likes a loser. Let's optimize and synchronize out-of-step rockets kicked to the curb. Our metrics don't measure failure, so step on solid ground. Climbing without a rope won't get you anywhere. Stay in harness. Holes in the floor? Keep walking. Eyes on the prize. Try Council Cerberus barking at the door. <laughs> Thank you for that. I mean, I was really laughing out loud when you were saying uh, nobody likes a loser. So this is really also as far as I have experience in, in academia, it is true um, that these negative results or what doesn't fit into a very nice hypothesis that is, as you say, marketable, uh, gets just put put away. And I always was saying that I don't know how many PhD students' lives were wasted because they didn't know about these negative results. And they didn't have to repeat it themselves again and again. I don't know how many times and pursue it. If this was shared and was available, then, you know, it would advance some thinking in this time and all this actually also money invested in science could be better used. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's like, in a sense, I think we're, we're in danger of losing the sort of experimental part of experiments. And obviously that's like, that's crucial. You have to be able to, try something new that you actually don't know the result of. And again, this goes into the idea of like, you know, do we know things or do we not know things, right? Are we going to find certainty? Are we not going to find certainty, right? And there has to be a place for uncertainty because we don't know everything and we're never going to know everything. So we just have to sort of cope with that in some kind of way. Yeah. And um, then actually this to me, um, so don't think because I, I'm more into neuroscience, I forgot the second part of the of the collection. This to me very nicely um, connects with um, another poem in the um, in the second section. Um, 
which was about a meeting you had actually in the in the university. So, university bulletin. Oh, university bulletin. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, there. So also for the for the listeners. So this the there are let's say at least for me there were there are certain uh, you know when you look at it to the two sections it could be completely different. You can say okay like oh like one is about neuroscience and you know there's so many other themes in the second one. But it is also I I saw let's say in, in some poems some parallels and in the end it's also about the language and it's also about you know self reflection and this you know uh, let's say what we discussed about like feelings against structure and so on. So um, I also thought that this uh, poem University Bulletin, what you have been talking about just now about things not being marketable, uh, about, you know, if something doesn't make money, what is the point? I guess there I, I saw a criticism from you about the university business model right now as basically seeing the student as a, as a source of cash and, you know, universities are actually not built for that. Exactly, exactly. And I'm I'm very involved in my own faculty union here at the University of Manitoba. And so um well, I mean we just had a 35-day strike, so we're 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 quite thinking about the ways in which the uh the institutional uh reshaping, I guess, is taking place in ways that are that are anti-academic actually. They're anti-intellectual and they're act they're anti they're anti-scholarship and they're anti-scholar. And you know, this is very alarming. And this is happening all over the world, right? It's not just in you know my university, it's like all across Europe, Australia. Um, there are all kinds of threats to to the autonomy of of the of the creator in a sense, I guess. And whether that's like a scientific creator, or whether that's like a you know a literary creator or or whatever. Like I think there's you know we're trying to be um, well turned into tools, I guess, for someone else's ends rather than like knowledge itself being being sort of the end but yeah but thinking about like it's the two parts of the book so the first part of the book is a series of approximately 30 or so poems which are sort of based on neuroscience and, and scientific and the second half is more eclectic um, and the more sort of traditional um, lyric poems I guess right where there's a speaker you know observing various things about the world and so on but I think um, like again like there's still about a lot about power right and about knowledge and about um, you know the idea of being like thinking you know one thing and then having that blown apart by something else. Like the final poem in the book is about a visit um, to uh, to a, to a shrine, right, to a very important site of Catholic pilgrimage um, in in New Mexico. And the speaker, who is and is not me, <laughs> right, at the same time, right, like goes there like like with this sort of you know very blasé attitude. Is like, well, I I know it all. Like, look at these primitive people with their sacrifices. You know, this is ridiculous. You know, who would ever think this could possibly work? But then, like, something really profound happens to them, right? And it's not, um, you know, they're not having some sort of religious conversion, right? <laughs> or maybe they are, right? Like, who knows what it is, right? It's about uncertainty, right? But they have this sort of overwhelming moment there, which takes them by surprise and which undermines, like, that which they thought they knew, Right about themselves and about about the world and sort of the way the way things are. So I think that kind of um, of um, having the rug pulled out from under you is in both of those sections. I think maybe in the first half I'm trying a little bit more to pull the rug out, like consciously, like to show, like you know, you think you're going to know everything, but you're, you ain't. You know, you're not. Um, whereas in the second half, it's more the speaker of the poems who is like getting sort of like 
repositioned in a in a way. But yeah, um, I I do see them. Um, I said at one point that I thought like the first part was the head and the second part is the heart, but that's wrong. Like they're both they're both each of those things. Yeah. I, I would, think, yeah. I would, at least to me, that completely, um, to, this, uh, both being head and the heart completely transported to me while, while reading the, reading the, um, uh, the book, the collection. And I mean, with the, when you mentioned the, uh, pulling the rug, uh, I totally had that. It was a great punch in, uh, foundling. One and two. So <laughs> this was the, the in the in the second section. So maybe I mean you can mention about uh, tell, talk, tell tell us about a little bit of the theme. I mean this is I really like this pointed to a uh, gender discrimination I never thought of. So <laughs> this would be um, this would be really great if you can talk about this poem for two sure. poems. Well, so yes, I'd love to do that. So a couple of the um, well, several poems in here deal with um, folklore. Of, of different different kinds, and actually that comes up also in uh, in the first section as well, right? Some of the neuroscience poems have to deal with fairy tales, um, and so um, that idea comes up again in the second part. And so um, the second for this this particular poem, Foundling, um, we had gone, we were traveling. I was doing some research on um, Hudson's Bay Company workers, actually, who came from Orkney. So we were in the Orkney Islands there, um, and. Uh, touring around and listening to stories of, of shipwrecks and this sort of thing. And, and so sh shipwrecks and seashores and things like this come up quite a bit in the second part of the, the book as well. And so um, I was struck by this sort of, you know, mythical tale, you know, of the, the shipwreck where the baby is saved. And then uh, I was thinking like, what, what would it be like to be that baby? Like, you know, you would never know anything about yourself. And, but wouldn't you always sort of wonder like, why, why was I saved? Like, how come everybody else on that ship, why me? You know, so that was the first part of the poem. And the second part of it um, is a little bit different. Actually, maybe I'll just read those if I can take a second yes, to do please, that. Please. Okay. So you can hear, I guess, the two parts. And uh, right. So there's no footnote for this one. <laughs> I'll, just, uh, I'll just start there. Foundling. Another story. Night, a ship driven onto rock. Among the breaking timbers, heaving surge of water's giant fist, a strobing flash of lightning shows one thing that can be saved, small package passed from desperate hand to hand, a baby, nothing else. Anonymous parcel with no return address, landless, nameless, face recalling features of the dead, unmoored. That baby could be anything from bastard prince to king. Foundling, jettisoned into a future. Who will take him in? Shepherd boy or merchant, he'll sleep with animals or else on feather beds. He'll be written on or write. This story is an anchor he'll drag throughout his life, a sack he can't unpack or drop. A course between Scylla and Charybdis, one cliff the weight, the weight of fate, his rescue proof he's marked for something. The power to do good or else destroy, by accident, everything he's come to love around him, moving the story forward, protagonist. Or, the other cliff, the certainty of randomness, the knowledge that he doesn't matter, never did. Boundling 2. And if the baby is a girl, that story never starts. And that's the end of that poem. So 
thank you for thank you for reading Foundling. While uh, reading it, also I completely felt the punch of that of that second part. So and also made me think again. Uh, yeah, this is exactly how how it happens in um, in uh, in such stories. So um, you basically then came up with that as you explained when you were thinking. Okay, like this is what happens if you were this little baby. But then how did you then arrive to the part where you say, oh, what if it was a girl? Um. Well, I guess maybe my I'm always sort of wondering what if it was a girl? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's I think always yeah. a good question. You have to flip it to see actually if uh, if it holds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I was thinking, I mean, like the reason that um this folklore is passed along is because of a family name, right? There's a there's one particular family name in this area which sounds like it comes from Spain or Portugal. Um and so that's that that that's a hereditary through the male line, right? So um, we don't have, I mean, I guess, suppose practically speaking, you know, were it a girl who was born, um, you know, her name would be gone. But then like, how, how could the baby have a name anyway? This is, the, this is also <laughs> another thing. Like these things don't necessarily, you know, make any sense really logically. Um, but I think like the question of what if is always really sort of interesting. Like what if it was a girl? What if it was a kangaroo? You know, what if, what if a nematode could talk, you know, like what would it have to say to us? Um, and thinking about that kind of thing really uh, opens interesting doors, I think. And again, like I would say science, one of its questions should be like, what if, you know, and um, it's important that we have like all those what ifs as possibilities that we're not trying to shut it down and be like, you can say what if, but you can only say what if in 10% of, you know, the spectrum of possible what if questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, then I also can understand from this. You're also um, kind of then have questions about the bias. So I mean, about gender bias as well. And I can see so um, in the second part there are also poems about aging, about global warming. So what uh, busies Alison's mind as a poet and as a person? Um, I, I assume this is what we see. So, but what is in your mind? What is um, what are the concerns that that we can see reflected in your poetry here? Um, well, I think it's like generally, I guess I would say concerns with power. Um, specifically, I would say like um, w- the ways in which um, human beings seek to dominate each other and the world. I guess are larger ones, and sp- specifically, like I have very gendered concerns. Um, I'm concerned about um, the environment. Um, I, I'm not an activist in those causes, particularly in like I have, you know, friends and colleagues who are out there, you know, putting their lives on the line, I guess, in ways that I do not do that in. a. I mean, I'm in the university. I make a good living. You know, I'm a middle class white woman, um, straight, cis, like it's all like I have all this privilege. Right. Um and but I think it behooves like a poet's job, I think, is to direct people's attention to things and to say, like, hey, look at this, like, look at this thing you never looked at before. I'm going to write a poem about this acorn, you know, and like then next time you see an acorn, you will maybe think about it a little bit differently. Or, you know, the Canadian poet Aaron Murray has a poem about an onion, right, which I don't actually really understand that poem very much. <laughs> But I think it's very beautiful linguistically. But every time I'm chopping onions, right, I sort of have this flash of like thinking about like, oh, like this onion is more than what I think it is. 
you know, it's, it's not just this object for me to consume, right? There is something else possibly there, like this onion consciousness or the, the onion being or whatever, you know? Um, so I think like, um, poetry and writing, creative writing in general often tells, like tries to get people to look at things and I, I would, I think, I mean, my poetry obviously is directive to a certain extent in which I'm, I'm, I'm not overtly, I guess, well, maybe I am, I'm, maybe I'm not a good judge of that, but I'm not overtly like trying to tell you what to think about something, but I am telling you to think about it, <laughs> I guess, ideally. So I would say that that would be a, like a concern of mine. Um, I've written poems about my own neighborhood, um, talking about um, changes in it, the um, gentrification and so on that's going on in it, which I am part of as well. Um, and I think, um, yeah, like I think these are all just things that I'm that I'm thinking about, right? And actually, a lot of them are concerns that came out in my academic writing as well. Um, but poetry allows me to say them in a different way and to say them in a way which is less... Um, thesis driven, I guess, right? Like, like a scholarly article, you know, you have a start, you have a trajectory, you have to get to the end, right? You want it to be as clear as possible, right? Poetry, I can bring those things up, but I don't have to clarify them. I can allow them to exist in all of their like, realistic murkiness. And it's the murkiness that other people can sort of look at as well and, and pick their way through. So it's not me telling them necessarily, like, thus we can see as a result, blah, 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 right? But you know, I am showing you these things and sort of, I'm sure suggesting like, you know, look at things, you know, turn a little bit like left, I guess, from where you were before and yeah, and tell me what you see. Yeah. Thank you for that. So um, I, I would like to really um, thank you again for joining us today. It has been very nice um, conversation. And um, as a last question, what I would like to ask is, um, uh, what are you working on now? What can we expect from you as a next project? I know it's mean because there's just this collection of poems are out, but uh, I'm really curious. Uh, what's next for you? Well, I'm curious too, actually. Um, <laughs> Good. I always feel like I have a bit of a bit of a hangover after I finish sort of a project, right? Where I feel like like the next few things I write will be still kind of like coming out of of this project and actually working on the, the connectomics poems was quite interesting for me because the series built up over a period of years um, to reach the, the stage that, it, that it's at now. And so I'm wondering, you know, like, do I have more to say? Like, I don't, I don't think I do, but you know, I, I might be surprised later on. Um, but it's interesting. Like I find that as a writer, I'm very influenced by the places that I'm in. So um, like I could be writing a poem about, a talking pig in the in 18th century England, right, which I have done. Um, but the details in that poem will be what I happen to see out the window, right? So the pig is looking at flags, I'm looking at flags, the flags go in the poem, you know. Um, so I think what I write in a part depends on where I'm able to go and where I travel to. And now that the world is opening up again a little bit after, after closing down so much with COVID, um, I'm not sure what will happen, actually. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to bubble up. Um, this collection, uh, Synaptic, uh, was written pre-pandemic, although I guess a few poems in there were written during the pandemic as part of the revision process. But I'm wondering, you know, post-pandemic, what will, would that change my writing? You know, would there be something different? And I think, I think lots of people are wondering how things are going to change. And this is sort of one, one of the things specifically that I'm, I'm wondering as well. Mm -hmm. 
I'm looking forward to it personally. Thank you, Alison, for joining us today and this great collection of poems. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.